Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 2. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 627. We're going to start this morning with just the first 11 verses, uh, though our entire passage extends into chapter 3, verse 5. Beloved saints, this is God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to it. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us out from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, and in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and to enjoy good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, and you made my heritage an abomination." The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Let us ask God to open our hearts and our minds to his word this morning. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not by nature people of your word, and so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds. Give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our study in the prophet Jeremiah and his message to the people of Israel. And last week we saw that uh, Jeremiah ministered in the latter days of Israel's existence, at least uh, as it was uh, before they were carried away into captivity and exile uh, in Babylon. Jeremiah was the one chosen even before he was born uh, to go to... God's people, and confront their sin. And that's where we want to begin today. We uh, want to look at chapter 2, which rehearses Israel's history 
uh, really the history of their rebellion against their God. But what's most telling about our passage is the language our God chooses to use. He doesn't come as their creator. He doesn't come as their king. He comes as a betrayed husband. Our passage isn't so much about a broken law, though it includes that. It's about a broken marriage. And if we're really honest, about a broken heart. For in this passage, we see God's grief over the rebellion of his people. And today we want to look at the story of God's marriage to his people, Israel. And we'll start where marriage does, uh, where their marriage does in the Exodus out of Egypt, and then we'll look at Israel's unfaithfulness to their God. And we're going to see as we look at this passage that sin is a powerful and a clever enemy that destroys relationships. Really, much of our passage is given over to Israel's sin and the voice of sin, what it sounds like, how it attacks. And what we want to see is just how clever it is and how destructive and deadly it is. By the end of our chapter, we're going to see God announce his his intention to divorce Israel, to bring this marriage to an end. But we don't want to end there. Really, we can't. This is only chapter 2 of a very long book, the longest book in the Bible. We want to end our time this morning by asking that most important of questions. Is there a way for that marriage to be saved, even in the face of divorce? And if so, what will it take? That's that's where we want to head this morning. We want to start with that story of marriage, move on to the unfaithfulness of Israel, and then to that divorce and the questions it leaves us with as we move forward in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Really, verse 2 sets everything up. God says, I remember your devotion as a bride. Your devotion as a bride when you followed me into the wilderness. We know what he's talking about. When did God uh, lead Israel into the wilderness? It's when he brought them out of slavery, four centuries of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Much time was was spent of those four centuries in hard labor. Uh, It didn't start that way, but sure ended that way. And God then led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years. Years. At the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel took vows before God. These were like marriage vows, oaths of allegiance. And God made vows to be their provider and their protector, to be their husband. There at the foot of Sinai, at that mountain, God took a bride. He took Israel to himself as a wife. And it's the beginning of their love story. And like most love stories, it begins well. There is that honeymoon phase. Israel then followed her husband into a new home, as brides do. He gave her a land flowing with milk and honey. And they all lived happily ever after. Or did they? See, the Bible tells us what is required of a husband and a wife in marriage. And it's not the same thing. Exodus 21 tells us what's required of a husband. A husband is required to provide food 
uh, shelter, clothing, protection, and children to, for his wife. A husband who refuses to provide any one of those things has abandoned the marriage, and the Bible says the wife is free to leave, and that money that the husband had to give to her father as a bride price, she gets to keep to live on. He's forfeited his rights to the marriage and to return a return of the bride price. Now, obviously, a husband was also required to remain faithful, not commit adultery, But these are the requirements of the husband. And so the first question is, well, how did God as the husband in this marriage do? And that's what verses 3 through 7 in our passage are about. God brought Israel into a plentiful land, fulfilling that requirement to feed his bride. He protected her from all who would attack her, verse 3. Uh, he, he provided shelter and protection that a husband was required. But that's just the beginning. Uh, Israel went on and multiplied and grew and had many children. The third requirement of a husband, God kept up his end. At no point could Israel look at their heavenly husband and say he had failed to be a provider or a protector as was required. But what about the bride? What about Israel? Well, a bride's responsibilities were covered in Deuteronomy 24, which says that a husband is only allowed to divorce his wife if she commits adultery, if she's unfaithful. It was not her job to provide. It was not her job to protect. But it was her job to be faithful to her husband. She's forbidden from taking other lovers. If she was unfaithful, the husband could write her a certificate of divorce and send her out of his house. And this was a public declaration to all that they were no longer married. For Israel, as a corporate bride, unfaithfulness would mean pursuing after other gods, committing idolatry. Spiritual adultery. This is the nature of sin. This is what sin is. It's spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to our heavenly husband. And that explains the language that starts in verse 7 and continues through the rest of the chapter. The people of Israel did something the people of no other land did. For all the other land's faults and failures, they maintained their gods from generation to generation, even though they were false gods. But Israel, they turned their back and went after other, the gods of other nations. They had no sense of loyalty, which was common even to the other nations. And the worst part of it all is they were the one nation that had the true God. The God they were abandoning was real and powerful, unlike the false gods they were chasing after. They exchanged the truth for a lie, reality for a fraud. Now, it's one thing to identify the nature of sin, what sin is. It's another thing to identify what drives it. What is the heart of sin? What causes us to turn our backs on God and pursue others? And that's really what verses 12 and following are about, the heart of sin. Let's read verses 12 through 19. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born slave? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cisterns are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. Using an image from farming, God says, He is the source of living water. He is the one who has provided fountains of living water for them. And what he means is he waters them. uh, Living water is moving water. So he he, he waters their land with springs and rivers. But here's the thing about springs and rivers. Whatever water you see in front of you today won't be there tomorrow. It just keeps moving. They're not still waters like in a pool. Anything you don't use today will be gone tomorrow and you have to hope more comes from upstream tomorrow. But this is exactly how God works. He doesn't want his people to trust their reserves. Remember what it was with the manna? Don't try to collect for tomorrow. Wait for me to provide tomorrow. He wants his people to learn to trust him, and that so runs contrary to our nature. We don't want to trust God. We want to build up our stockpiles so that we don't need to trust him. And so Israel turned to gods who promised to bless them with such great abundance today that they wouldn't have to worry about tomorrow. They wouldn't have to trust tomorrow. They became like farmers who dug cisterns, which were huge Uh, room-sized, water-holding chambers. But what happens to sitting water? It grows algae and mold. Sure, there's more of it, but it's not good water. And eventually, those cisterns leak, and the water disappears. And so in their quest for security, verse 14 tells us they become vulnerable. They, they obtain the opposite of what they sought after. And according to verse 17, they had no one to blame but themselves. Now, this didn't all just happen in one day. They didn't just wake up one morning and decide to commit adultery with false gods. That's not how sin works. Sin is gradual, and there is a path it follows But the voice of sin is the same in all ages. If we learn to identify it, we'll learn to hear it when it comes. And that voice of sin is recorded in verses 20 through 35 in a series of declarations made by Israel. I've come up uh, with seven R's to help you remember it. The voice of sin comes with seven R's. 
And you're going to recognize these declarations that sin makes because you've made some of these declarations or perhaps all of them in your own heart and mind. The first is found in verse 20. And the first thing we do is we resolve to obey. I think verse 20 could best be rendered like this. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds and said, I will not serve. This is recorded for us in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, as God's new bride prepared to enter the promised land. They declared, listen, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We will not serve. We will not serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. This was their declaration, their their resolve to obey. That's where we always start. I'm going to do it. We all know what it's like to make this kind of statement. God, I'm going to obey. Sin is not going to get the best of me. We begin with the best of intentions. We, We aim for the stars and we think we're going to achieve it. After all, how hard could it really be to just say no to sin? But what happened? The second stage of sin is when we fail but refuse to acknowledge our guilt. See, Israel pursued other gods. They turned from the true God and followed imposters, the creations of man. They became wild and undisciplined. Then came the shame. And they tried to rid themselves of their shame, to take care of it themselves. God says in verse 22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. So unable to get rid of their guilt, what do they do? Look at verse 23. After they try to wash themselves, what do they say? They say, I am not unclean. I have not gone to the bales. They simply refuse to acknowledge their guilt. If you can't take care of it, just pretend it's not there. We haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing to see here. It would be funny if it wasn't so familiar in our own hearts and minds. Why is it that it's always our first response to deny guilt and to try to make things look better than they are? Isn't it because we think it's our job to clean ourselves and we don't know how? I don't know how to clean myself, so I'll just pretend I'm not dirty. And so in fear, we run and we hide from the truth. But that can only last for so long. Eventually, we have to resign ourselves to failure, which is the third step. As we come to verse 25, we find Israel unable to any longer deny their failure. But rather than, they, than ask for forgiveness, they just resign themselves to failure. They say, it's hopeless. I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Now, it might sound humble. I've heard it many times in many ways over the years. People say something like this. 
Well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God didn't choose me. You should just give up on me. There's nothing humble about that. And it's an attempt to, to sound pious, but what, what they're really saying is this. I don't want to fight my sin. I don't want you to pursue me. I don't want you to love me. Can't you just please let me be? Resignation to failure is the cry of someone who relies on his or her own strength and doesn't want to turn to God for help. But it's when we feel our weakest that that God tells us to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's then that we learn what it means that when we are weak, he is strong. But that's hard. It's humbling. And so we give up and we hope that those who love us will just leave us alone. But if they don't, there's always the next step. Step four, rewriting history. In verse 27, we find that Israel eventually says to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. Now they know God is their father. They know he created them, that he he gave them birth. But if they acknowledge that, there's consequences, so they rewrite history. God? What God? We we never followed God. We've, We've always followed our idols. They made us. One of the telltale signs that someone is listening to the voice of sin is they start claiming things about the past that simply aren't true. They'll accuse people who have loved them of always treating them poorly. They'll claim they never really believed, but they were pressured. They did it to fit in. They didn't understand what they were saying. One of the ways people try to justify the present course of action is to claim that it's always been their way, their dream, their plan, that that nothing has changed. But anyone who knows them, anyone who's walked the journey can see right through it. And yet we'd all be lying if we said that we haven't done this or at least been tempted to. Sin makes a lot of promises, but it never delivers. Eventually it will fail. It always does. The end of the road of rebellion will always be failure and heartache. And so everyone else can see what's coming a mile off. But the one who has turned a deaf ear to reality is always surprised, always the victim. Why did this happen? Why didn't anyone warn me? Doesn't anyone love me? Why is my life always so hard? But eventually they will, in a moment of weakness... Go to step five, which is return to God for an easy fix. They'll offer a quick prayer. God, if you're there, help me. That's what Israel does in verse 27. It's not true faith. It's not true repentance. It's opportunism. They're grasping at straws. They will say anything to anyone to get them out of the tough spot that they're in. They're users. 
But of course, God never delivers those who seek to enslave him to their own glory. Because repentance is the only road of hope. You know what's next. They, they turn to you and they say, I asked your God for help and it didn't work, as if God was to blame. But God can't be manipulated. He can't be bullied. Look at verse 28. He turns to them and says, Where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many uh, as your cities are your gods. You've got so many gods. Surely they can help. But eventually, sin tells us to just break all ties. It wants a release from God's claims on your life. In verse 31, Israel says, We are free. We will come no more to you. Sin will always lead you to the point where you believe it is best to get as far away from God and his people as you can. When people do this, it's like a slingshot. They run. Sin, make no mistake about this, has one goal. It's a release from God's claims on your life. Sin is not about fun. Sin is not about peace. Sin is not about fulfillment. It's not about seeking truth. It has no regard for reality. Sin is at war with God. That is always where it's headed. That little sin today is part of a big plan that ends with you telling God to get lost. Perhaps you've uttered those words or perhaps you've witnessed someone who has. It is not life. It is not freedom. It is death. It is enslavement. He is God and he always has a claim on your life. The last thing you ever want is the one true God to leave you alone. But even those who have declared themselves free from God will still deal with that nagging voice of their conscience. And so the final step, the seventh step, the last thing sin will teach you to do is rationalize your choices. Rationalizing your attempt uh, is your attempt to make everything sound okay and reasonable. Have you ever noticed what people who destroy their marriage with adultery love to tell people. We're getting divorced, but we're going to remain friends. It's all very amicable. Why? Why is that always so important to someone who destroys a marriage? They want to tell everybody, if we're still friends, it can't be that bad. I can't be that bad. Isn't that what Israel says in verse 35? I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. How many times have you heard someone say, I don't hate your God. I just don't follow him. Can't we all just coexist? The final stage will always be to try to make it sound reasonable. Sometimes it will look a bit different. The rationalization will sound more like, how could I be angry at a God that doesn't exist? How can you accuse me of sin when there's no right or wrong, really? It's all just a social construction. 
This is why people like Dawkins and Hitchens and Dennett and Harris spend so much time promoting atheism and why so many people buy their books. It's an attempt to make rebellion against their creator appear completely rational. But we don't need to spend our time pointing fingers at everyone else. Isn't that Israel's problem? They loved it when God destroyed their enemies, but he hated it when, they, when he called them to account. What's more helpful? Identifying other people's problems or your own? What we really need is to identify how often we listen to sin's voice and how often we repeat it. If we can't or are unwilling to do that, we will not be able to stop it before it gets to its end. And what is that end? Let's read verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would that, not be, would that land not be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where you have been ravished by the waysides and have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, my father, You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil you could. Eventually, God exercised his right to divorce his adulterous bride. but that comes with consequences. According to the law, a husband was not free to ever take back an adulterous bride once she had been set away in divorce. To do so would be to defile himself and his home. And so the question is, what hope is there for God to be reconciled to an adulterous bride once he has divorced her? Now don't fool yourself into thinking, what does it matter? I'm a Gentile. I'm not really concerned with what God does with Israel. Beyond that being incredibly hard-hearted and selfish, it fails to understand that what is being described here happened many years before when God sent Adam and Eve out of his garden. That was an act of divorce. In Adam, the entire human race was divorced because of their rebellion and sin. For God to be reunited in marriage to any human would mean he will become defiled. That person's impurity would be transferred to him. And that's our greatest problem. That's the impediment to reconciliation. But that's exactly what God was willing to do for us because he loves us. Because that's what a good husband does. 
When Jesus hung on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our impurity onto himself. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. Before we finish the book of Jeremiah, God will call Israel a virgin. How is that possible? It's only possible when he takes her uncleanness, her foul, her stench, her impurity upon himself. This is what Jesus was willing to do. Take our impurity onto himself in order to take it from us. Because that's the only way to save a sinful people, an adulterous bride. Jeremiah 2.22, the passage we've read today, says that the Israelites were unable to wash away their sin with, with, lo, with lye and soap. That's because there's only one thing that can wash away our sins, and that is the blood of Jesus. And God reminds us of that each and every week when we come to the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine before us remind us that Jesus came into this world, took our impurity upon himself and died on the cross because that was the only way to wash away our sin. That's how great his love is toward us. He willingly suffered the indignity of our sin in order to show us mercy and grace. Has a bride ever known such love as this? Has there ever been a better husband than Jesus? I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this wonderful reminder of our Lord's love toward us. And please pray with me. Our gracious heavenly bridegroom, you know our hearts. You know how easily we are led away by sin. You know the roads we walk down that lead farther from you. You've seen them a million times and nothing surprises you, nothing deceives you. You see all things so clearly. Grant us your clarity. Help us to see sin for what it is. Help us to turn deaf ears to the lies it tells. Teach us to run to you and not away from you. Help us to stand strong against the temptation. Help us not to justify our foolishness. We thank you that you came into this world to take away our impurity by taking it upon yourself. We thank you that you have washed us and made us as white as snow. For it is by your grace we pray these things. Amen.